This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello for the wild community, Ayana here, and before we explore the island wolves of British Columbia with Ian McAllister, I wanted to share a few updates. Spring is turning out to be quite a busy season this year. I'll actually be leaving my beloved Cougar Mountain in just a few weeks to spend a month on the road, dreaming and scheming with some incredible comrades. First, I'll be teaching at the Northern California Women's Herbal Conference on the weekend of May 18th, then off to the Spirit Weavers Gathering in Southern Oregon for the first two weeks of June. From there, I'll be jumping to Detroit for the Allied Media Conference and ending the month in Washington at the Protecting Mother Earth Conference presented by Indigenous Environmental Network and hosted by the Nisqually Nation. I'd love to see who of the For the Wild community will be at these fabulous events. Also, if you're interested in our reciprocity retreat in July, email engage at forthewild.world. There's only a few spots left. Last but not least, For the Wild podcast and the collective of folks who are behind the scenes rely on your contributions to keep the shows rolling. Consider making a donation at forthewild.world. All right, now on to the show. I often think that, that wolves are just waiting for humans to really get their act together and to start to look at the natural world in a different way and one that is based much more on, on respect. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we will be speaking with Ian McAllister. Ian is co-founder and executive director of Pacific Wild, a nonprofit located in the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest, committed to defending wildlife and their habitat 
on Canada's Pacific coast. He is an award-winning photographer and author of six books, and his images have appeared in publications around the world. Ian is a member of the International League of Conservation Photographers and a recipient of the North America Nature Photography Association's Vision Award and the Rainforest Action Network's Rainforest Hero Award. He and his wife Karen were named by Time Magazine amongst leaders of the 21st century for their efforts to protect British Columbia's endangered rainforest. He lives with his family on an island in the heart of the Great Bear Rainforest. Well, hello, Ian. My warmest welcomes to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for, for having me and my pleasure to, to speak with you today. Well, it's an honor to be speaking with somebody who knows as intimately as you do the rugged coast of northern British Columbia, a land where mountain and sea are inseparable and ancient relationships that benefit the whole such as salmon and bear or wolf and raven still hold on. And we at For the Wild feel a call to rally for the protection of these northern lands and waters that shelter the last intact stretches of temperate rainforests on the planet. And we're soon launching a campaign to end old growth logging in the Tongass National Forest of Southeast Alaska. For we believe it's our public responsibility to protect these irreplaceable ancient forests especially as U.S. taxpayer dollars continue to fund their slaughter. And in this time where human civilization is quick to suffocate any land that still clings on to their wildness, we're truly devoted to multi-species justice and the protection of as much wildland as possible. And the temperate rainforest is just so dear to our hearts. So, you know, Ian, you have devoted your life to being a voice for the incredible species that call these disappearing slivers of old growth home. And I'm so grateful for your work and the work of everyone at Pacific Wild. So truthfully, there is so much we would love to ask you about in this interview, from current logging practices in the Great Bear Rainforest to ecosystem health amidst the death throes of oil development, nuclear fallout and climate change, salmon farming, even the recent ban on the trophy hunting of grizzlies, marine protection of great bear waters, you know, honestly, the list goes on. It feels right to let the wolf cultures that gifted you their trust steer this conversation. So with the help of their salmon kin, these island wolves, they blur the boundaries between marine and terrestrial and are the ultimate testament to wild functioning ecosystems. The lives of these wolves are astonishingly rare, for they have persisted on this coastline uninterrupted for thousands of years, despite the murderous fear of colonizers that led to the extirpation of wolves throughout the vast majority of Turtle Island. So Ian, would you begin by telling us a bit about the wolf families you hold dear? What do the island territories of these apex predators look like, and how have their pack traditions behavior and morphology been shaped as much by the sea as by the rainforest? <laughs> yeah, those are wonderful questions and something that we've been uh, studying and trying to really better understand. Uh, they, uh, you know, that what's incredible about this whole um, central or north coast of British Columbia, what's known as the Great Bear Rainforest, is that it very much is a, a massive archipelago. So it's probably over a thousand islands uninhabited by humans today. 
that have been functioning, you know, very much in an unbroken, unfragmented way uh, since the glaciers receded from this coastline. And wolves have been a, a dominant apex species, predator species, on these islands. Um, other than the offshore islands of Haida Gwaii, where wolves have not existed historically, virtually all of the other islands up and down this entire coast are inhabited or at least claimed by packs of wolves. So the, the ocean influence on these terrestrial mammals has been significant and, and also long-standing. And I think it's probably one of the more surprising ecological attributes of, of these wolves that uh, still remains largely unstudied, largely unknown, but you know how much the, of the ocean actually influences the, the behavior and, and morphology uh, and culture of, of these extended families or packs of wolves. And uh, what we've observed over the last 20 or so years is that it's, it's significant. Uh, for some packs, over 70% of their diet comes from, from the ocean. So in the fall season, these wolves are showing up on the same salmon rivers almost at the same time, coinciding with the annual salmon spawning migration. And they're feeding on salmon uh, almost exclusively for as long as the runs last, which is sometimes two and a half or three months. So salmon is a huge part of their diet. We just come in from three weeks on the herring spawning grounds, uh, documenting the, this incredible natural history event where tons and tons of herring uh, come inshore to spawn in the intertidal zone. And one of the, the, the great treats of, of documenting this season is being on the, on the beaches at the same time that packs of wolves emerge from the forest to feed on uh, the little tiny herring eggs that are exposed at low tide. And they'll uh, be feeding, even today, they're still out there feeding on herring eggs. Uh, every time the tide goes down, they're feasting on them. And that will go on for at least three weeks to a month. So another, you know, just another example of how the ocean is influencing and feeding terrestrial life. And of course, there's uh, offshore packs of wolves that live on these really rugged windswept islands, and they walk the perimeter of their islands every day or every few days, searching for beached whale carcasses. And they're also preying successfully on seals, uh, harbor seals, and and even sea otters and you know mink. And and uh, there's some wolves that are that specialize in digging for clams and flipping over rocks for intertidal critters like you know small crabs and chitons and blemies and all kinds of other uh, intertidal life. And, and you know, the, what, what at first uh, I thought that this was maybe sort of incidental or opportunistic behavior and, you know, why not? Why wouldn't a wolf eat marine, uh, marine food? But as the years have gone on and we've done more intensive studies and, and spent much more time in the field directly observing these wolves, we realize that there's nothing opportunistic or incidental about this behavior that this is a very long-standing uh, relationship between wolves and the ocean and and it's in fact um, one of the reasons that that has uh, shaped you know the very DNA of these of these animals they're incredible swimmers and we've documented individual wolves swimming over 10 kilometers of open ocean and this is cold water with a lot of current and other packs that are swimming a few miles of, of open ocean on a weekly basis as they explore their their uh, their home territories, which is often comprised of numerous islands. 
So, you know, we used to think that islands were, was maybe a barrier or a natural boundary for a PAC's territory, but again, not the case there. Individual PACs are claiming archipelagos of, of islands and islets as part of their home territory. So the ocean has um, been very much a key contributor to, you know, the health and prosperity of these wolves. And one of the reasons why these coastal wolves maybe have uh, some of the highest pup survivorship rate of, of any wolves in the whole Arctic or where wolves exist in the northern hemisphere is partly because of this predictable and nutritious and quite easily accessible food. So if you consider salmon swim right to the wolves and, you know, they don't kick back like a, like a deer or a moose. So it's um, easily accessible, nutritious, and predictable, which uh, is a, another contributing factor to the fact that these wolves may uh, be supported in the temperate rainforest and some of the highest densities of, of any wolves in, in, in the world. So there's uh, lots of superlatives and unique ways to, uh, to describe these amazing predators, yeah. These island wolves, they also are guardians of genetic diversity. Can you speak about the human-caused genetic bottleneck faced by wolves elsewhere on Turtle Island and why the genetic diversity carried by these island wolves is crucial for the longevity and resilience of wolves everywhere? Yeah, I think this is the most fascinating um, parts of the molecular research that has been conducted on, on, the, on this wolf population. This is a collaboration between Canadian universities and universities in the United States and Sweden. And um, after exhaustive uh, hair collection and scat collection and genetic analysis of these wolves, scientists were astounded to find this incredibly high level of, of genetic diversity that was still present within these wolf populations. And it's not to say that these wolves deserve to be a separate subspecies, which would be a, you know, a debate among scientists, but they certainly have maintained and held the genetic diversity that has been lost in other wolf populations. You know, wolves have been extirpated in so many parts of their former range and have been just viciously persecuted in the most brutal, unimaginable ways by humans ever since they landed in North America from Europe. Because of this huge loss and because of this constant annual mortality uh, wrecked upon wolves by humans, the genetic diversity has been lost. And so, you know, imagine 30, 40, 50 percent or even higher mortality rates uh, of wolves, wolf populations every single year. Uh, we've really been forcing them through a, a genetic bottleneck. And it's no different than if someone came to planet Earth and started killing 30 to 40 to 50 percent of the human population every year, we eventually would lose our, our languages and our our skin colors and uh, the genetic diversity that makes humans uh, so diverse on this planet. And it's no different with what has happened with wolves. So unfortunately, the genetic diversity has been lost in wolves from the prairies to the north to almost everywhere, even in southeast Alaska in the Tongass, because of the high level of roads uh, the density of roads that have been built there has given humans access to unprecedented amounts of the Tongass National Forest, and those wolves even have been reduced in uh, levels of genetic diversity. Yet here on the BC coast, because the ro the road density, at least on the north coast, has been relatively sparse, 
and First Nations are still living in within their traditional territories, and there's been a long history of, of respect between First Nations here and, and wolves. Wolves are, have been very, very much revered and, and is uh, showcased in their culture and their totems and stories and art. And there's, you know, wolves are, are described in these ancient stories as, as protectors and providers. So very different worldview of wolves than what Europeans have brought to North America. Uh, so wolves have been protected for a long time here, have been respected, but also uh, Europeans have not had access to them because this forest is still largely intact. The roads have not been built into these last wild areas. So wolves have been able to avoid the complete disharmony and, and persecution that their continental kin have been suffering for hundreds of years. And so they've been able to harbor and safeguard the genetic diversity that's been lost in other wolf populations. So these wolves, uh, in many respects, really give us a, a window or, or entry point into understanding wolves of the past in, in an unbroken, unfragmented lineage. Thank goodness for them. Thank goodness for these places that have been left unroded. And I know that's a big topic in the Tongass National Forest with the roadless rule and the fear that our current administration could topple that over and what that would do to wolf populations and intact old growth forest is indescribably uh, frightening. So thank you for, for bringing up those points. And I'm thinking about you in these places and that you've spent hundreds and hundreds of days in this forest alone, contending with drenching rain and hurricane force winds, really gaining the trust of these elusive wolf packs. And I imagine that you, you know, crossing a threshold from the realm of conditioned, civilized human into the world of animal, a world that relies on heightened senses and intuition and a real delicateness of how you carry yourself. Yet the fact that you were accepted as, you know, just another resident of the watershed, like the cranes or the kingfishers, speaks to the fact that these wolves have not been heavily spoiled by human civilization. So I'd love to hear about how the wolves kept you in check and how you kept your boundaries, knowing that habituating wolves to humans inherently endangers them. Yeah, really good points. Uh, fortunately, so many of the wolf packs that I've been spending time with over the last couple of decades live in really remote, difficult to access locations and have very little impact with or uh, cross paths very uh, seldomly with humans. So there's less of a, of a concern with habituation. But what seems consistent with the relationship that I have with, with individuals and with packs of wolves is is that there's you know something far deeper and more profound about the idea that they're merely tolerating a human in their presence. It's something I think that has just existed on this coast for well over 10,000 years. And if you think about like all of the prime areas where the traditional village sites are located, they're still in the same present day home core territories of, of packs of wolves. So the and some of that is just simple 
biological needs, that the needs of wolves overlaps that with the needs of humans. So humans are always looking for access to fresh water and uh, old growth forests and clam beaches and salmon rivers and protection from the winter storms and basic ecological values that overlap between human and wolves. But there's something also uh, much deeper than, than that. And, and I think that wolves and humans uh, once shared this landscape seamlessly. And that has largely been, been broken today. And the interest in the, the long-held behavior of, of, of wanting to share this territory uh, with humans is still uh, very much part of the culture of wolves today. And it's, you know, it's really remarkable Like we've had many, many researchers um, working for us over the years who have been out uh, collecting um, hair samples or scat samples or doing transects for deer and, and different things in the field. And you know, some of them are, um, you know, 100 pound females. And suddenly they find themselves in a in right unexpectedly in the middle of a of a den site with pups, you know, running around at their feet. And there may be somewhere between seven and 10 adults who just move away and um, like literally, uh, you know, abandon their pups. Hopefully the, the pups hide in, in, a, in a den. But um, but the point being that this has happened so many times and, and I've had the same experience countless times, but I've never, ever been, you know, attacked or, you know, shown aggression by wolves, even going into their most sacred spots, such as a, as their pup rearing areas. And, that, you know, that's really remarkable when, you know, we've I've seen wolves without even thinking twice attack, you know, a full grown grizzly bear that wandered into one of their den sites or a black bear or a moose. And these are animals that are, you know, capable of protecting themselves, uh, inflicting far more damage than, uh, you know, an unarmed human being ever could. The natural uh, reaction, almost without fail, is for wolves to to not attack and that and that that again is I don't think that's learned behavior because these are wolves that have have not had close encounters with humans but it's something again that's within and I often think that that wolves are just waiting for humans to to really get their their act together and to start to look at the natural world in a different way and in one that is based much more on on respect and and you know wolves uh, unfortunately have suffered from some of the worst marketing of uh, almost any animal, but maybe next to sharks on the planet. And, you know, people fear them. They, many people just hate them and, and want to rid them of the landscape. And we certainly see that with provincial government policies here in British Columbia, where wolves are treated virtually like vermin. So open season hunting, open season trapping, there's no mandatory reporting or compulsory inspection of wolves that are killed. You don't need a special license to kill wolves in British Columbia. Anyone with a hunting license can just go out and, and kill a wolf or in many parts of BC as many wolves as they want. So wolves are, are treated virtually like, like vermin still today, uh, not respected at all for the for the function that they play in, in the ecosystem. And as such highly social, incredibly intelligent animals that uh, we could learn a lot from.
I want to ask some more details about this government-led wolf killing. And in 2014, BC released a wolf management plan that encompassed a government-sponsored cull, with January to April 2015 seeing the murder of 84 wolves by government contractors from helicopters in southeastern BC. And this was all under the guise of protecting two populations of mountain caribou nearing extinction. So I want to ask where this wolf cull program stands now, and also why the argument for, quote, ungulate enhancement is misguided and is a detachment or a detraction from the critical requirement that deer, elk, and wolves all have for old growth forests. Yeah, well, I think the the wolf call that is going on right now in British Columbia is the 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 perfect example of our misguided attempts uh, around wildlife management, but also illustrates best our our so this this government sponsored um, it's a really a deep seated hatred of of wolves, and you know they ostensibly say that they're spending millions of dollars um, on eradicating wolves from large parts of British Columbia, especially around the Peace River area and the Selkirks in southern British Columbia, because they blame wolves as um, disproportionately preying upon endangered caribou herds. So they are putting snipers in helicopters, and uh, it's actually worse than that. They're it's one of the most insidious things I think I've ever heard of, but they actually trap, um, they'll trap a member or two from a pack of wolves and they'll put a radio collar on it. And then they'll follow that when the winter uh, snows come, they'll follow that wolf by radio collar through satellite uh, beacons and whatnot. And they call them Judas wolves because the wolves, when they rejoin the rest of their pack, then the helicopters go in the air and they shoot them from the air and kill them in, in the deep snow. Many of them are wounded, left to suffer. Uh, but this is um, how they're killing hundreds and hundreds of wolves in, in British Columbia right now. So, uh, yes, extremely offensive way to one of the most cruel methods of, of killing wolves that's being conducted right now. They're in year four of a five-year kill program. And they're saying that they'll probably just continue it uh, for years to come. But what, what what's so tragic about this is that is that wolves are being scapegoated for you know government negligence and, and habitat protection for these woodland caribou herds. These are old growth dependent animals that eat the lichens of, of old growth trees. And it's these trees that have been systematically cut down for fiber. Um, they've been um, all the roads have been accessed for mines, for oil and gas, for countless industries, uh, even helicopter skiing operations. Uh, all of this critical high elevation habitat has been modified. And so, at the end of the day, when the federal government says, you know, because of our Species at Risk Act, you've you've got to do something to save these endangered caribou herds. The only real substantive action that the provincial government is taking here in British Columbia is to spend millions of dollars to kill wolves. And that's their answer to saving ungulates. And by all accounts, by independent scientists, um, this simply will not save these remnant herds. They are doomed to destruction in the absence of substantive habitat protection. And unfortunately, that's not what's happening right now. And wolves are paying the ultimate price for, for government inaction. Gosh, how many countless times do we see 
species or even indigenous peoples being scapegoated for really what extractive industries is to blame for, say, you know, what you were talking about, the old growth forest, it's not the wolves that are killing the last ungulates. It's the fact that industry has slaughtered the homelands of these ungulates. That's what they need. They need habitat. And it's it's so incredible to see this human supremacy and the invasiveness of it coming in and, and blaming everything but industry, everything but development, everything but habitat destruction. And, uh, and I see it all the time. And it's really, it's really frustrating. Another thing that you brought up was the radio collaring. And in your book, Following the Last Wild Wolves, you describe how before you grew a relationship with wolves, you thought that they couldn't be studied except by invasive radio and satellite telemetry techniques. But your mind clearly changed, and I loved reading about the holistic approach of the Rainforest Wolf Project that was not only grounded in the oral history of the Hlitzduk, but also that the team used observational and molecular techniques that you've been speaking about so far, the analyzing scat and hair that the wolves left behind. Since then, the team has minimized its impact even further with the advent of remote-controlled video cameras. But radio collaring is still commonplace, whether that's with wolves, bears, etc. And I'm wondering, why is radio collaring so widely accepted, not with so much the helicopter killing, but why is it so accepted in wildlife biology? And have you seen radio collaring traumatize individual animals or disrupt pack dynamics, or lead to information that is inconclusive, or even misrepresentative? Another great question, and in the inception when we started more formal um, studies of coastal wolves, you know, we asked ourselves those questions, you know, would would we learn more doing, you know, telemetry or satellite-based radio collaring with wolves, and would we learn more than sort of this molecular approach where it's non-invasive? And, you know, at the end of the day, the main point was that uh, we know through other studies, both with grizzly bears or other large carnivores, that they frequently die in the traps or, you know, mis- misuse of, 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 of drugs, sedatives. There's all kinds of things that can happen in the trapping process that would be, could, could lead to, to death. And, and I think that that would be just unacceptable when there's an alternative and, and through, you know, intensive, and it, it means a lot more people days, it means a lot more people in the field over a longer period of time. Um, but the information gathered is essentially the same. We're learning where animals are moving through the landscape when you're able to test, uh, tell so much about their diet from a single follicle of hair or, of, of course, through scat analysis. We're able to tell stress levels. And, and there's so many things that can now be told through non-invasive techniques such as um, mark recapture methods uh, and, and DNA extraction from hair scat. Um, so it just seemed like a logical way to go. Having said that, it's an incredible amount of field work that's needed. But we've just worked with uh, incredible people and with the support of, and direction of local First Nations. We've uncovered a tremendous amount of information about uh, local, local wildlife and and wolves are, you know, as an apex predator that is alive, that is awake rather year round, unlike, say, grizzly bears that are asleep for half the year, they're telling us about the health of the rainforest and the health of, uh, 
of even the ocean environment. Um, so we're learning um, much more about broader ecosystems than just wolves themselves. Well, speaking about more than just wolves, I'd love to turn the conversation to salmon, this life-giving thread that weaves and feeds the watered and forested tapestry of Cascadia. And in Following the Last Wild Wolves, your book, you write, quote, the salmon-wolf relationship is one that should be measured in evolutionary timeframes, end quote. So I'd love if you could elaborate on this ancient relationship and how it's faring as industrial logging, industrial fishing, and human development have chopped, degraded, and disconnected the great marine terrestrial interface of the northwest coast. A secondary question would be, how are the small streams and watershed diversity indispensable to the longevity of all species of the bioregion and the northwest coast? When you consider how important uh, salmon as a food source is for these coastal wolves and the fact that that behavior and association um, outside of you know, these uh, indigenous communities largely uh, unknown until recently it, it, it makes a, makes me realize how many how many mysteries are left to uncover in in the rainforest and and it, you know again it's uh, you know similar to the association between herring and wolves and and seals and wolves and other marine sources, the, the relationship between salmon and wolves is a, is a very ancient one. You know, even some of the uh, behavior or catching methods that wolves deploy to actually catch a salmon has been studied. And it, what it shows is that, again, that the way the wolves move and the way they swing their tail and arc their back when they actually catch a salmon has been shown to be something that could not have evolved in a short amount of time that, you know, this is something that has been playing out in these remote creeks and river valleys for thousands, thousands of years. So uh, it's, it's, it's incredible to think of, you know, how the ocean has been feeding uh, so much life in, in the rainforest here for such a long period of time. And especially because, you know, we see that even with jurisdictional, you know, governance of, the marine environment and the terrestrial environment here on the west coast of Canada, because the provincial government has jurisdiction over land decisions in the rainforest, but the federal government have jurisdiction over everything in the marine environment. And they rarely uh, see eye to eye or agree, but the idea that we have actually delineated this clear political boundary and jurisdictional boundary between the ocean and rainforest when everything that we witness here uh, shows sort of this in, this interface that is seamless. It's like this marriage and interaction that just flows back and forth with the currents and tide and, and how you know, terrestrial animals are, go into the ocean to feed and how marine life like salmon penetrate hundreds and even thousands of kilometers into the interior to spawn, bringing all of that marine-based nutrients into into the terrestrial world and 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 how even nutrients uh, being carried in the wind is is fueling productivity in the old growth forests themselves and there's this, this constant uh, conveyor belt of nutrients going back and forth um, so the idea that we can somehow separate these two worlds just no longer makes any sense and and we really should be protecting more of the ocean environment in order to protect more of the rainforest species that uh, that exist there and vice versa. 
What do you see the biggest threat being to the salmon, the wolves, and their relationship to one another and to the greater web of rainforest species? And do you find one of these threats to be nuclear fallout from the explosion at Fukushima a few years ago? Traveling and living and working in this area, uh, there's been just this nonstop roller coaster of massive and industrial threats that face this place. And, you know, perhaps that it's such a beautiful place that everyone wants a, a piece of it. And, and that's certainly been the case here. And there's, whether it's, you know, the fish farming industry wanting to expand throughout this whole area, putting, you know, harmful impacts on, on wild salmon or offshore oil and gas exploration or pipelines bringing bitumen and massive tanker traffic that would follow to the ongoing deforestation, to there's just been so many big threats that have have come here, and then of course, yeah, the incredible tsunami that happened, and you know what are the impacts on on the coast from from the radiation? I don't think anybody really fully understands it. I, I certainly don't, but people certainly question. You know, is it safe to be eating the seaweed here? Is it are the fish safe? Is is what what are the the long term impacts from that kind of a environmental catastrophe so there's there's certainly unknowns and and it's i think very very challenging because uh, it's hard to imagine what we could do about it other than being forced not to eat from the ocean which um, would be devastating for for local communities here
Last summer, I interviewed Jody Holmes about the Great Bear Agreement and how this immense effort of diverse coalitions work to fully protect 30% of the Great Bear's monumental river valleys and islands. Yet you've seen the brutal alteration of these forests continue. And in response, Pacific Wild calls for greater protection of the Great Bear, noting how the original agreement fell short or it fell short of adequately protecting wolf territory as well as the marine environment like you've been speaking of. So from what I understand, the remaining 70% that is not under full protection is managed under an experimental process called ecosystem-based management. And while EBM is said to protect cultural and ecological values, roads are still built, sport hunting and mining are still allowed, And to be honest, I question the reality of on-the-ground surveying and operations. Anecdotally, I've heard that it is often more profitable to turn a blind eye to cultural or biological artifacts whose notice would actually prohibit logging operations. With all that in mind, could you speak to why the conservation of large, intact, roadless areas is vital for wildlife, which you've mentioned about the wolves and the salmon, but also for climate change, and perhaps if you'd like to describe your feelings about EBM and the need to protect more of the Great Bear and and maybe even ways in which you see that being possible. Incredibly, you know, as I've been just talking about some of the relationships between the ocean and the terrestrial environment, you know, today we, we still have protected about only about 1% of our marine ecosystems in our, in our jurisdictional waters of the west coast of Canada. So we've got so far to go in order to adequately protect the marine environment. Uh, we're still bottom trawling, which is virtually like open pit mining of the, of the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we are are the unsustainable fisheries, whether it's uh, shellfish or salmon or herring, uh, continues. There, there are so many issues facing our oceans right now, and uh, by all accounts, the oceans have, have far exceeded their their ability to be resilient, given what is happening throughout the world's oceans. But it's no different here on the west coast of Canada. So, uh, certainly, a lot of work left to be done on that front, and it's something that Pacific Wild and other organizations, First Nation communities are, are focused on in, in the near near future. When it comes to protection of the rainforest, uh, this is an area where there's been a tremendous amount of work to bring attention to the plight of these old growth forests. You know, temperate rainforests only historically occupied about 0.1% of the Earth's land mass, and most of what's left intact and unprotected is found here on the west coast of the north coast of British Columbia and southeast Alaska. But the the fallback position that um, unfortunately was reached was that there would be about 30% of the coast put into solid protection, the kind of protection you would expect out of like a national park or a conservancy area. So you know, not off limits to logging, mining, road building, etc. But then there's 70% that was placed into what's called ecosystem-based management. And this, as you said, really is an experimental way of managing humans in the landscape. And it's still long-term rotational forestry. There's still old growth logging allowed to occur in it and road building. Salmon watersheds can still be logged. It uh, is not, should not be considered a surrogate for 
core protection, and that's been one of our main uh, criticisms of the EBM approach. And it also hasn't been uh, carried out over an appropriate amount of time in other jurisdictions. So we could actually look at those places and, and agree, you know, is that a model that we would like to follow? Uh, so there's a lot of problems still, a lot of outstanding issues left to protect adequate levels of, of old growth forests here on, on the BC coast. Well, we're with you on that. And um, I yearn for a ferocious conservation, more land conserved, because I'm just watching the development in rural areas where I live and honestly all up to Alaska from Northern California. And it's it's really devastating to see places that were once wild then turned into logging lands and then turned into parking lots, basically, especially in southern British Columbia, Vancouver Island and, and such. And the other part, though, of me thinks about conservation in a, in a different lens. And some people think that conservation should include land or wilderness that is completely untouchable to humans. But then this is contentious as conservation can be a form of modern colonization, restricting ancient lifeways of indigenous peoples. Conservation on BC's coast seems to be a space for reconciliation in recent years with initiatives led and guided by First Nations. But I'm wondering, in your experience, how have you seen conservation be imperialistic or regenerative for relationship building between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples? I think that is certainly one area that has certainly played out and continues to play out here. And when I think of the first years that began exploring this part of the coast and getting to know some of the First Nation communities, the difference then to now is dramatic. There was, you know, First Nations were seen as an impediment to industry accessing trees and marine resources to the point today where you know, backed by so many important precedent-setting cases that, that have shown clearly through the court systems, the highest court of Canada, um, supporting First Nations' rights and title, that this is unceded territory and that the government has an obligation uh, to not only consult, but basically listen to First Nations and in, in how marine and, and lands are, are managed. And so there's been a, a, a transformative era that has taken place here over the last uh, 20 years, I would say, where First Nations are uh, now driving their own respective marine and, and land use plans. And that's been a, been a huge um, step in the right direction. Reconciliation is a term that is used loosely by the federal government and probably industry. I would say, based on uh, what I hear from First Nation communities, is that there is such a long ways to go on that front. But it is heading in that direction, not quick enough. The, the land use plans that were agreed to here have been largely supported by First Nations, so that, I think, is, is extremely positive. But I think the one thing that is, is consistent and that you know, we should all be grateful for is that the mutual interests and desire of, of each of these indigenous communities on the coast is uh, very much about you know, protecting their traditional territories. And, you know, when you look at these small communities in the Great Bear Rainforest, they're still situated in the heart of their traditional territories that they have claimed ownership over uh, for many, many thousands of years. And 
And the health of these areas is directly related to the health of, of the human communities. And, and that's not lost on anyone here. So I think that's what has to give us the most hope for this coast. And and we've seen when, when these places are threatened, whether it's by pipelines or offshore oil companies or fish farm companies, et cetera, we have seen the strength and resilience of these communities in protecting their, their lands and waters. And, and that's not going to change. In fact, it's only getting stronger. The, the, the cultural strength of, of these indigenous communities is getting stronger and stronger. And so if there's a part of planet Earth that we can be hopeful for, I'd have to think that this is, this is one of them. Because of its relatively low population, human population, because of its strong indigenous population and still the full suite of of flora and fauna that exists here still functioning albeit uh, at a less abundance than historically would have been found here but nevertheless the the pieces are still here so we're not talking about having to try to rebuild something or figure out how to make an ecosystem that has been destroyed come back again it's not about restoration or revival. It's about really just protecting what we have here. And and that is the most cost-effective and, in fact, the only way that we can protect ecosystems because, truthfully, we don't understand how this entire web of life actually works and functions. What we do know is that if we can protect it and protect enough of it, and that's why protecting more rainforests, more of the marine environment, is essential to the long-term resiliency when things that are coming to this coast from other parts of the world, such as radiation from tsunamis and nuclear facilities, et cetera, et cetera, acidification and ocean temperature regime changes and a host of other things that are, that are affecting uh, this coastline from, from outside. The more we can protect of this place, the more resiliency and tolerance will be built into it. So protecting as much as possible is the key to the future here. I couldn't agree more, Ian. And as we come to the close of this incredible conversation, the wolves are are back in my mind. And at the beginning of this conversation, you contrasted the misguided and ruthless way that colonizers viewed and still view wolves compared to the First Nations cultures of the coast that have lived in reverence alongside them for millennia. Wolves, like you said, were honored as messengers, providers, and protectors. And perhaps one of the most visceral pieces from your stories is when you tell of the beyond coincidental findings of the den sites within the old Halutstuk village sites. And then more than 50% of the den sites your team identified was within or in very close proximity to ancient villages. And although humans and wolves do have similar requirements for food and shelter as top-level animals, you pose that it's not that simple. And you wrote, quote, I don't doubt that the ancestors of these wolves lived with the ancestors of the Hilutstuk people here. When these wolves led us into their lives, are they waiting for us to rediscover that relationship? End quote. It's just such an incredible feeling to sit with after this conversation. And my heart wants humans to rekindle that relationship, to find once again our humble role as fellow companions of the forest. But I wonder if this wolf-human relationship will ever be possible in light of the current trajectory of modern civilization. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, well, you can only hope so. And, you know, sometimes it 
especially when you sort of view the what is happening on this planet through the eyes of a species like like a wolf. Yeah, well, it's heartbreaking, really. But then I also think of, you know, where we were 20-something years ago or 30-something years ago in terms of societal values and how we judged and, and valued uh, species like wolves. And it's changed dramatically. And I know in our own conservation work, there are an incredible amount of people uh, around the world who have a very deep, strong affinity uh, for animals like wolves and want to see them protected. And and when you think about the advances in, in science and our understanding of, of wolves and how they actually facilitate and protect and provide critical function for broader ecosystems, uh, and if wolves are removed from the landscape, then we see this cascading, this cascade of, of impacts that happen uh, within the ecosystem. And, and so, you know, there's much greater recognition of wolves and the important role that they play in ecosystem function today than, than there were not many years ago. And, and while it seems a, a little too slow and sometimes a little too late, there's hope for it. Uh, one of the things that Pacific Wild is trying to do is is to get wolves, these coastal wolves, recognized for their genetic uniqueness and to hopefully provide better protection so that they're not trapped or they're not shot indiscriminately and that their habitat needs are looked after as well so that there's still work to be done on that front. But a lot of the groundwork has been done. And I think that public and societal values uh, around um, supporting these types of initiatives have increased a lot over the last few years. It was pretty tough to try to get the government's attention or anyone's attention about actually protecting wolves not long ago. And today, that's changed. Not fully, but it's it's changed. So so yes, there's, there's still hope. And the fact that these wolves still exist here, as much as they have for many, many thousands of years, it's quite a remarkable thing, all things considered. Yeah, so we're, yeah, extremely fortunate, more work to be done, and looking forward to, to making more progress on, on wolf conservation and other conservation issues in, in the future here. Wow, Ian, thank you so much for your work. And for any of the listeners who want to learn more about wolf conservation and all the work that you're doing up in northern British Columbia, they can go to pacificwild.org which is your organization. And thank you. And I'm just waiting with bated breath to head north this summer to get some more information and speak with more people about the Tongass National Forest campaign. And so perhaps I'll be coming through your area and um, we'll get to meet in person. Uh, Very much look forward to that and love to show you some of uh, some of the local haunts around here and and I hope you get a chance to get lost in the rainforest and on your on your journey. And thanks again for for having me and on your show. And and yeah, look very much look forward to our paths crossing. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Kitchen Dwellers and Rumpke Mountain Boys. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. 
I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast team. Andrew Storrs on editing and production, Madison Magolski, our research director and podcast wrangler, Molly Lebove, our fabulous media director, and Francesca Glassbell with research assistance. To learn more about the Tongas campaign that we mentioned in the episode, head over to forthewild.world. Also, consider making a contribution and signing up for our newsletter while you're there. And rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. All right, thanks so much, and until next week.